The two great wings <coughs> of Dhamma practice, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. <coughs> Without wisdom, <coughs> we may have compassion, but we won't understand the causes and conditions for suffering. And so, even if we have the wish to help in a situation, we won't necessarily have the understanding of the best means to do it. And so compassion without wisdom is very limited. We might have wisdom and not compassion. And that is, we see the suffering, we understand the conditions for it. And yet without the compassion, <clears throat> we're not motivated into action. We're not motivated to help alleviate it. <clears throat> So these two qualities together are the great supports of the Dhamma. Compassion is that particular feeling in the heart that wishes to help alleviate the suffering in oneself and in others. It's similar to the feeling of metta only it's specifically directed towards beings who are in pain. It's that power which actually motivates us to take action. That's the great power of compassion. It moves us. It's a wholesome movement of the mind, of the body, in response to suffering and a wish to alleviate it. The question which may arise is, how does our Vipassana practice, or how does the development of awareness, support the growth of compassion? What's the relationship? What does awareness have to do with compassion? With that feeling which is described very beautifully by the Zen poet Ryokan, 18th century hermit monk and poet, said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering people in this floating world. That's the feeling of compassion. What opens us to this feeling, or what connects us to it, is a deepening closeness and a deepening understanding of the nature of suffering. Where do we find this suffering? we find it all over. It's pervasive in the world. And when we look outside at the world, the situation, in any sphere, in the political sphere, 
You see tremendous conflict and war and torture and horrible things going on, tremendous suffering. We see it in the economic sphere where there's tremendous poverty in some places and people suffering. We see it in the social sphere where there's social injustice. We see it in the religious sphere. How many conflicts all over the world arise because of different religious beliefs. And the depth of this and the pervasiveness of this is really quite intense when we open ourselves to it. When we really can feel and see what is going on. But even when we ourselves live on an island of relative peace or security or well-being, it's not that there's freedom from suffering in that situation. If we have a body, there's going to be suffering. Because the nature of the body is to get older and to get sick, to get diseased and to die. And this is the nature of it. This is how things are. Even if for some period of time the body is healthy, we need only look at our minds to explore another domain of suffering. And the catalog is vast, you know, of fear and of anxiety and of loneliness and of anger and of hatred and of jealousy and of long, long list of kinds of suffering. The suffering even connected to the very process of awakening or enlightenment in the sense that what we're doing is bringing ourselves to our boundaries, to what limits us, to that place of limitation, and then opening. That place is often very difficult when we come just to the edge of what we're willing to be with. That's a difficult place and there's offering suffering, often suffering involved in seeing that. The great lesson for us in this, and one of the lessons that is at the heart of developing compassion, is the understanding that suffering is not an individual problem. It's a universal experience. And a lot of our practice is to realize that, to realize the universality of the nature of suffering. The seeing of that, the understanding of that, creates a very powerful bond between people. Sometimes what's quite beautiful to experience at the end of a retreat, particularly a long one, is the feeling of closeness that people have for one another just from having practiced together not from having had particular contact or speaking together, basically from having suffered together. 
<laughs> and the commonality of that, it's like we understand each other because we understand our own experience. If awareness of suffering, if openness to it, is the condition for compassion to arise, and there is so much suffering in our own experience, in the world outside, then why is it that we ourselves in the world are not more compassionate? If suffering is the cause of compassion, and there's so much suffering, why does there seem to be, very often, so little compassion? As we're looking at our experience in practice, we begin to see how in so many ways even though the suffering is there, we have been conditioned to close ourselves to it, not to open to it. If we can't feel the pain in ourselves, if we can't open to it in ourselves, how can we feel it in others? And so, so much of our practice is learning to open and seeing when we're closed, seeing how we close. There are many kinds of resistance that arise in the mind. There's a lot of ways we resist the feeling of physical pain. You know, painful sensations arise, and it takes a lot of practice to actually become equanimous to become open, to become accepting. Very often there's aversion, there's this dislike, this pushing away. There's quick sidelong glances. I'm going to take a quick look at it and then move away. There's the bargaining with it, there's the in order to mind. There's having our mind massage the pain with the breath in order for it to go away. All of that is, is ways, they're ways of avoidance, ways of not actually feeling it for what it is, not feeling the suffering of it. Sometimes the resistance is more subtle. You know, we think we're actually opening to it. We think we're being mindful, we're even noting it. But what's the tone of voice of the note? Pain, pain, pain. You know, and so, even when we're observing and noting it, unless there's a lot of sensitivity to how we're doing it, the resistance can be there. So it becomes necessary to observe that, to soften the tone, so that we actually coach our mind into a soft receptivity, in order to feel it. This takes a fair degree of courage, just a real willingness to feel what pain is like, especially when it becomes intense. But that's how we know, that's how we know it. 
That's how we know the suffering of it. And that's how we can come to compassion for it. There's resistance in the mind not only to physical pain, there's resistance to the suffering of different kinds of emotions and mind states. There are certain ones for each of us which are not okay, which are too painful. And so we create our lives around the avoidance of those feelings. Maybe they're feelings of loneliness. Maybe they're feelings of unworthiness or insecurity or sadness or fear or anxiety. Some feeling which is so painful for us that we fill our lives in an attempt to avoid them. We can do this in so many ways. Of course, many of the usual ways we have are not accessible to you here. You know, like into the refrigerator, or turn on the TV, or pick up the phone, or go to the movies, or whatever. But yogis have their own ways of avoiding unpleasant emotions. Now, how many times when the mind is, gets pulled into a fantasy and really lost in it and an enjoying of it, how many times is it because that what's happening is some kind of uncomfortable feeling? Maybe it's boredom, maybe it's restlessness, maybe it's something that goes deeper. One of the great openings and understandings in practice, one of the things that frees up so much energy for us in our lives, <clears throat> is to learn that it is simpler and easier and freer to actually allow ourselves to feel these emotions rather than invest all of the energy into trying to avoid them. The emotions come, we feel them, they're suffering, they're painful, they're unpleasant. And if we can open, sometimes that's a whole process, we see that these emotions and feelings come and go. They're essentially empty and ephemeral like everything else. It's much easier to sit back and feel loneliness and just to watch it, to see what it's like, than to spend one's whole life in a frantic, frantic attempt to avoid that feeling. This is a very big part of self-acceptance, of accepting the whole range of who we are a whole range of emotion, including the difficult ones, including the unpleasant ones. The 10th century poetess in Japan was considered to be the finest woman poet of Japan. She wrote, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. 
no part left out. That's our practice. In opening to this domain of emotions and mind states, and particularly the difficult ones, we need to find a balance. We need to find the balance of not avoiding, not pushing away, not denying, on the one hand, and on the other, not getting lost in them, not identifying with them, not wallowing in them. Just that place where we're open, where we feel them, where we allow them to arise and pass away in their own rhythm. There's resistance in the mind to physical pain. There's resistance in the mind to emotional pain, to difficult emotions. There's resistance in the mind to difficult people and situations. Just think of what we do in the presence of someone who's really difficult, obnoxious, aggressive, irritating. What's our relation? What's our relationship to that kind of person? Because of the unpleasantness, which really is because of some kind of suffering in that person, what we do is close off. We pull back. We keep that person out. And from that place of being closed off, the mind creates an array of judgment about that person to justify our own closing, our own resistance. We begin to justify our own aversion to that suffering. Can we practice letting things in, letting the pain in the body in, letting the pain of difficult emotions in, letting the suffering of different people in? suffering of difficult situations. There's one other poet from Japan. There's so many beautiful poems just about this theme. This poet's name was Isa, 18th century had an amazingly difficult life. His mother died at the age of three, said that his stepmother used to continually beat him, and that he wrote later on in his life that he almost never went to bed without tears. Just just imagine the difficulty of that kind of childhood. And as he grew up and was an adult, he was living in this tremendous poverty. 
and his first wife died, and four of his children died. And it's just a life on and on and on of this kind of suffering. But he had a great heart. He had a heart that could let all of this in. One of his, one of his haiku poems, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. Cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. That really is the move of openness. It's the move of compassion. For compassion to arise, we need to learn how to open to the entire range of experience in our lives. To the range of physical pain and emotional pain, to the range of people and situations that we meet. Ryukan, who was that poet who wanted to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world, it said of him, he was a very uh, wonderful, wonderful hermit monk. He used to live up in the mountains and basically hang out and play with the children. It said that he had so much compassion, so much connection, that he used to take the lice out of his robe, sun them, and put them back. <laughs> That's compassion. <laughs> So then a question arises when, when we think of this, or even can imagine this possibility. What keeps us from even approaching that level you know, of response? What, is it, what are the boundaries? What is it that keeps us from opening to the suffering, which in turn allows the compassion to come forth? We don't open to the suffering because of ignorance. There's a certain kind of ignorance in the mind which keeps us closed to the feeling of different kinds of pain. This ignorance very literally means an ignoring an ignoring of the true nature of phenomena. And because of this ignorance, because of this ignoring, we are often living with the belief that happiness comes, that a true and deep happiness comes from more and more pleasurable feelings. To a large extent, we live our lives based on this belief. 
This is what craving is about. Craving is the hunger for pleasant feeling. And our ignorance about the nature of things keeps feeding this hunger and craving for pleasantness. Because of this ignorance, it also feeds our resistance to feeling pain. If we have the belief that happiness comes from more and more pleasant feelings, what's going to happen? Based on that belief, we hunger after the pleasant, and we avoid and we resist the unpleasant. But as we close ourselves in this way, as we close ourselves to the feeling of suffering, we also close ourselves to the wellspring of compassion. And compassion changes then, or the possibility of compassion changes into its near enemy, which is sorrow, or aversion to suffering. Aversion to suffering comes out of a being closed to it. Compassion comes out of a being open to it. Sometimes people think that the aversion to suffering is an important motivation for taking action. Now, and it's a, I think it's a fairly common belief that we need to get angry at suffering because it's the anger that's going to motivate us. But that kind of motivation to take action does not have much sustaining power. It burns out and it burns us up. In compassion, there's not that aversion to suffering. There's an open to it and a movement of the heart to alleviate it. Very different states. Wisdom replaces ignorance in the mind or overcomes ignorance in the mind when we realize that pleasant feelings, the acquisition of pleasant feelings, is not truly the source of our happiness. We have to see that, and that's a lot of what one sees in this kind of practice. Why not? I mean, the conventional wisdom in society says, the more pleasure, the more happiness. I think you'll be very startled to see with sort of the eyes made fresh by three months of meditation practice exactly what bombards us through the media you know, at the end of this retreat. It is amazing. It's like all of the conditioning. You know, and the whole message of society is enjoy more, more pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure, and that's going to make you happy. But we know that there's a place of wisdom in us which 
in part is probably what brought you here, that it's not true. Pleasurable feelings cannot ultimately be the source of a real and deep happiness precisely because they're always changing. They're extremely unreliable. When we reflect in our lives how many we've enjoyed, just think to all the really pleasant times you've had in your lives, the best, the most ecstatic, that cosmic union with pleasure. (laughs) Where is it? It was nice in the moment. We've all had, if not that, (laughs) lots of really pleasant moments. We have, in, in that way, you know, we've had quite unusual lives, and yet they're so empty, they don't last. And so they don't give us what we're actually looking for. It's like drinking ocean water to quench thirst. The more we drink, the thirstier we get. said that the hardest disease to cure is when the medicine is causing the disease. So you keep taking the medicine in order to cure it, and the medicine itself is causing it. The disease is craving. When we're taking the medicine of pleasant feeling to cure the disease. I guess one more, one more. You know, the Nasruddin story of just the sweet one among the chili peppers. Just another sweet one, another sweet one, another sweet one. And it's never cured because that movement is just increasing the level of desire, increasing the level of craving. And so we're caught in this cycle. One of my great desires in life is for cookies. <laughs> and I met the perfect cookie company when we were teaching in Africa. The name of the cookie were Eat Some More. <laughs> I mean, it just said it right on the box. <laughs> Eat some more cookies. <laughs> One more. So it's just to see, it's really to reflect you know, on our lives and to see in our experience moment to moment when pleasant experiences do arise. And if they arise, when they arise in practice, can they fulfill us? Very ephemeral, very unreliable, they don't do it. And so somehow we have to readjust our understanding. We have to come to some understanding of the nature of things that's actually true.
Wisdom replaces ignorance in the mind when we realize that a more lasting happiness comes from letting go, not from reaching out for more pleasant feelings, because they're not going to do it, but that an actual deep peace, a deep sense of fulfillment, comes from the process of letting go from opening to the moment's experience rather than grasping and rather than avoiding. It is precisely this transformation of understanding which takes us from the mind which is grasping after pleasant things as a means of getting happiness to the understanding that letting go is the actual source of well-being. It is this transformation which opens the wellspring of compassion. Because our minds are no longer bound up in that energy of resisting suffering. We're no longer so attached, so desirous of pleasant feelings that we do everything we can to avoid the unpleasant ones, which allows us to open. And as we open to the suffering that is there, that is what makes possible the arising of compassion. In the meditation practice, moment to moment, as we open to each moment's experience, we are really developing that compassionate attitude. There is not just one way to feel compassion. I think it's helpful not to create some model in the mind or to romanticize this feeling, but rather to see that depending on conditions and depending on our personalities, compassion is going to be felt in many different ways. Some people it may be a very empathetic feeling that is actually feeling the pain of others in themselves. It may be a feeling of loving interest, of really taking interest and taking care about the suffering of others. In addition to the compassion which comes from the opening to suffering, there's also a very specific meditation which develops compassion. Just like the metta practice, there is a practice of karuna, which is the Pali word for compassion. And we do that by focusing on someone who is in a tremendous amount of pain, somebody who is suffering a lot, We call them to mind, we think of them, repeating the phrases, may you be free of suffering. May you be free of suffering. And just as with the metta, as that's practiced and we get more concentrated on the meaning of the words and on the feeling associated with that person, the compassion begins to get strong in our minds. Our concentration deepens the power of it. 
Like metta, compassion is not limited to particular people. I think this is quite an interesting place to look at in ourselves. When we think of people suffering, we think of people being oppressed or victims of injustice. It's not hard to arouse a feeling of compassion for them. But can we feel compassion for the oppressors? Can we feel compassion for the people who are perpetrating injustice? That's more of a stretch. Because often our response to people when we see them doing harm, when we see them causing suffering, is tremendous anger. We might feel that that anger is justified as a response. But really, those harmful actions are coming out of ignorance. They're coming out of the ignorance that's not aware of the pain behind the harmful action. Why do people do things that are harmful? In some way, there's suffering going on in them that often they are not aware of. It's so deep and they are so tightly identified with it. And so unaware of how to deal with it that it comes out in these very harmful ways. The ignorance of the law of karma. And when you see somebody about to put their hand in fire, you don't get angry. There's concern. There's compassion for the ignorance which is going to cause that that person suffering. In exactly the same way, people who are doing very harmful things are planting the seeds. They're sowing the seeds of their own future suffering. And they're doing it out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of not knowing what they're doing. If we can reflect on this in those situations, it's possible then to respond even to the people doing harm, not with anger, not with hatred, but with compassion for their ignorance. And it doesn't mean that we don't take very direct action, sometimes strong action to stop. No harmful activities is needed. But what's the motivation? What's the spirit with which we do it? There were times when the Buddha was very fierce. Now often we tend to, or I do, tend to think of him as loving in the softest and most gentle way. But in some of the stories, you know, in the suttas, he could be really tough with people, you know, in a very admonishing way. 
almost as if you know he would you know wake up. What you're doing is very harmful. There's one story of his charioteer when he was still a prince. His name was Chana. He's the one who who charioted <laughs> Siddhartha when he left the palace you know, and renounced the world. And later, uh, Chana became a monk in the order. But he always felt this particular closeness to the Buddha because of their past history together. And so he never practiced. He just kind of hung out and was capitalizing on his you know, past friendship. And the Buddha let him be and let him be, kind of hoping he'd get it together. But he didn't. And after some admonishment, just before the Buddha died, the Buddha told all the other monks not to speak to Chan at all, not to treat him as a member of the Sangha. This is, this is quite heavy. I mean, you've lived your whole life among this group of people, you know, with this revered teacher, and just before he dies, <laughs> the Buddha saying, Nobody speak to this guy. The Buddha died. Afterwards, Chana felt a tremendous amount of remorse, started practicing, became an arhant. <laughs> Buddha stories always end up great. <laughs> As the feeling of compassion grows in us, First, from opening to the suffering, opening to the suffering in our own practice, seeing in our bodies, in our minds, opening to the, to the suffering in the world, developing compassion, at times through the compassion meditation, where we're focusing our concentration on that particular feeling. It begins to manifest in compassionate action in the world. It really becomes a way we're relating in our life to different situations. There is no one model for how compassionate action should be. Now it's going to take many different forms. Some people are very responsive to the physical pain of people. And so really work to alleviate that. Some people are responsive to the mental pain and suffering. And so work to help alleviate that. Some people are responsive to the pain of samsara, to the endlessness you know, of these rounds of rebirths. You know, and this is really where the Buddha's great compassion was manifest, trying to get people to understand the cause of this endless cycle of rebirth. And to come to the end of that suffering. How we respond in these different situations will be very different. Sometimes it may be a direct intervention in a situation. Sometimes it can be 
a work of creativity. As, as I recall, I think it was <clears throat> Picasso who painted his great work Guernica after the experiencing the horror in the Spanish Civil War. It's like that's just the, the seeing of that suffering, it manifests in that work of art. Can manifest just by becoming a little kinder. You know, in our ordinary daily interactions. Can we become kinder in the way we relate to one another? There's a wonderful story of compassionate action in the life of Gandhi. After Indian independence, you know, in the late 40s, there was this partition of India and Pakistan and an amazing, horrendous fighting took place between the Muslims and Hindus. There was this mass shifting of population. Many of the Muslims from the Indian section, the Hindu section, were going by train to what then became Pakistan. Many of the Hindus in what became Pakistan were taking trains back into the Hindu part of India, and there were these mass slaughter you know, of people based on this religious conflict. And when you read about what went on, it was really horrendous. Almost to the point of uh, the new government of India dissolving because of, because of not being able to contain or control this, this carnage. They sent in you know, tens of thousands of army troops to the Punjab, which was divided you know, between the Muslim and Hindu part. And they could not stop the fighting. Gandhi went to Bengal, which is the Calcutta side of India, which was also partitioned. He went to, he went to Calcutta and there was this you know, massacring going on. And he announced that he was going to fast until death unless people stopped fighting. And he started to fast. And because of his purity and the level of respect which all of the people had for him, what tens of thousands of soldiers could not accomplish in the Punjab, one person was able to accomplish in Bengal. People stopped fighting and actually became reconciled. That fast became a demonstration of this amazing compassionate action. So it takes many forms and we each have to find our own ways of responding to situations of suffering. This compassionate feeling grows through a proximity to suffering. That means a coming close to it, really taking a look, being willing to look. 
every day in practice here is that opportunity really to take a look. Okay, what is this? What is the nature of pain? Pain in the body, pain in the mind, opening to it. We open to it in the world, either in direct experience, through books, through films, it's all around. Walking on the path of awakening, of enlightenment, itself becomes the most powerful compassionate action. Because we are opening to the deepest levels of suffering and also the understanding of the root causes of the bondage in the mind. And so in our practice here, what's happening in each moment of awareness, in each moment of opening, in each moment of non-resistance, in each moment of acceptance. It's a process of awakening the mind and of opening the heart. And it's out of this that the great wings of the Dhamma, the great wings of wisdom and compassion grow in us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.